We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans and the 13th chapter, the book of Romans and the 13th chapter. And I'll be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 11 through 14. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. I'll be speaking this morning on the importance of being awake, alert, and armed. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Here Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this opportunity now to be under the sound of the word of God. And we would ask for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would work only as he can as the sovereign spirit to open our minds and grant us understanding of your word, that our lives might be transformed by its power so that we might live lives that are pleasing and honoring to you. For we ask these things humbly this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, as we saw last Sunday, we are not to be indifferent when it comes to love, and especially to loving one another in particular. For now is the time for us to take the fulfillment of God's law seriously, which we can only do by loving the Lord our God supremely and by loving our neighbors as ourselves. For without genuine love operating among us, we have no rightful claim to be Christ's disciples. In fact, just having the right beliefs is insufficient when it comes to convincing a skeptical world that true love for God and love for others is really possible. Furthermore, without genuine love between us, we are defenseless when it comes to fending off the kinds of conflicts that can divide and disunite us as God's people. For only genuine love for one another can bind and knit our hearts together in a way that the world cannot separate. Only genuine love for one another can safeguard and insulate us from the kinds of attacks that our adversary will undoubtedly bring against us if we are determined to take God's law and its fulfillment seriously as a church body. And so now is the time, now is the time to make genuine fervent love, which does no wrong to our neighbor, a true spiritual priority for us, as Paul wrote back in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. For we need to be built up 
We need to be strengthened this morning by genuine brotherly love. And yet, not only is this the time for genuine love among us, but it is also, as I said a few moments ago, a time to be awake, a time to be alert, and a time to be armed for the calling and the gospel ministry that God is setting before us in his most wise and timely providence. For what we're facing as believers in a hostile world, what we're committing to as a body of believers who are about to constitute together is something that requires more from us by the grace of God than a general awareness of who we are and what is happening around us. But it also requires from us a level of engagement a level of attentiveness, a level of preparedness that you and I don't have in our flesh, which is weak and wayward rather than spiritually focused and obedient. And yet, as we see in our text this morning, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, these are spiritual qualities that we can possess if we realize what time it truly is, if we realize what things we need to cast off and what things we need to put on, spiritually speaking, for Christ, the one who calls us to this supernatural way of living, has made provision for us. He has made provision for us which we can now enjoy. And so let's consider what Paul states first in verse 11 about our need to know what time it truly is. Our need to know what time it truly is. For having just exhorted his readers and us to love in a way that does others no wrong, he now exhorts us to be awake in a way that we know what time it is. For Paul writes, besides this, besides knowing our duty to love, you know the time, or we could translate this, the time is being made known to you that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. To wake from sleep. And needless to say, this is a, a very interesting and insightful statement from Paul because in making it, Paul is clearly teaching that it is possible, it is possible for a true believer, a person who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, to be found in a state of spiritual slumber. And by this reference to spiritual slumbering, we are not saying that a true believer can fall back into that state of spiritual death that he or she was in prior to being saved by grace, because such a reversal from grace back to death is, is not possible. However, it is possible for a true believer who has not been alert or diligent in pursuing and participating in the means of grace to fall back into the sleep of carnal security, to become so slothful, so negligent in the performance of their duties that they can easily be likened to one who has fallen asleep for a period of time. 
And it is during those times when they are asleep that they lose any real sense of what time it truly is. They lose for a time any sense of excitement that they once had for God's Word, any sense of urgency that they once possessed when it came to serving God in the present. And therefore, it sometimes becomes necessary in God's dealings with us as believers to exhort us to wake up. Wake up and fully realize what time it really is before we lose even more. And this can be a needed exhortation for a church to hear as well. For churches can fall into a state of spiritual slumber as well. In fact, it's interesting that our Lord Jesus Christ, through John's letter to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 2, exhorted that church along this very same line of thinking. For Jesus declared to the church at Sardis, wake up! Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I, Jesus Christ, have not found your works complete in the sight of God. And needless to say, these are very sobering words for the church at Sardis to hear. And yet, I would suggest to us this morning that they still need to be heard today. For if we are slumbering rather than being fully awake, it is time for us to wake up. It's time to put an end to this season of spiritual complacency. It's time to put an end to this time of spiritual lethargy or this lack of energy and enthusiasm. It's time to respond as ones who are aware of our own decline, as ones who are aware of what it takes to be fully awake and responsive once again to the Spirit's leading. And of course, what it takes is a renewed commitment, a concentrated devotion to the means of grace, especially to the Word of God. For nothing will shake us from our spiritual slumber like a daily exposure to the Word of God under the influence of the Holy Spirit. For the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit, as some of the older commentators used to say, is a means to awaken and to revive our spirit. For it does not lull us into a state of spiritual inaction or inattention, but rather the Word of God instructs us on what time it really is and what time it is according to the Apostle Paul. And Paul states here in the rest of verse 11 that it is time to see, it is time to fully realize the reality and the urgency of three things. The reality and the urgency of three things. First, it is time to realize that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And no doubt the significance of this statement lies in what Paul means by this word salvation. 
For is Paul referring to some kind of physical deliverance that these believers were told to anticipate in their day? Or is Paul referring to our future salvation with respect to the consummation, with respect to the fulfillment of all that God has promised to his people through Christ? And I would suggest to you that Paul is referring here to the latter reality, namely to the fact that what we truly long for in terms of the fullness and completeness of Christ's work in us is simply not that far away. It's not that far away. It is not as distant from us as it may seem at times through our own poor sense of timing. For we tend to see the slowness of our own progress and grace, and we simply assume that the good work that Christ is doing within us is similarly impeded. And yet, Paul would have us to realize that our salvation, the completion of Christ's good work within us, is much nearer than we presently realize. And it's nearer to us on one hand, because despite what we might feel now, we are not what we were when we first believed. We are not what we were when we first believed. But we've experienced over time God's grace, and we've experienced a deeper level of maturity and a greater likeness to Jesus Christ. In fact, this is true of every believer, whether it is realized or not. For God's sanctifying work in us is not static. God's sanctifying work in us is always active. It's always active, even when it doesn't seem to be active. And the end of our sanctification is our glorification. Then secondly, our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed because the distance that we have to travel in this journey of grace is not determined by you and me. And because of this, we are prone to misjudge it. In fact, the scripture repeatedly speaks of the shortness of this life, of the uncertainty of this life from our perspective, and how easy it is for one to be caught off guard by death. And yet, for us as believers, the reality that we shall soon die does not haunt us. It does not haunt us, but it is a sure reminder to us that our salvation is nearer than we first believed. For when we first believed, our focus tended to concentrate more on our victory over physical death and less upon the nearness of salvation itself. But as we grow older, as we grow wiser in Jesus Christ, our anticipation of death reminds us that salvation is indeed near. And we even begin by the grace of God to long for that salvation. So first, Paul emphasizes here that it is time to see, it is time to recognize fully that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Then there's a second and third reality that we need to wake up to and fully embrace in our thinking. And that is what Paul states here in the first part of verse 12 of Romans 13. And this statement, the night is far gone the day is at hand. 
No doubt Paul's reference to the night here in verse 12 speaks of a time of intense darkness that is not only passing from the scene, but is now giving away to the light of the day. And Paul's purpose in contrasting the passing of the night and the arrival of the day is twofold. First, Paul contrasts them because the night is that time when we would expect one to be sleeping or slumbering. At nighttime, we expect someone to not be fully awake, whereas the day is that time when we would expect people to be awake, when we would expect people to take advantage of the opportunities of the day. In fact, our Lord himself talked to his own disciples in John chapter 9 and verse 4 about the need to discern the opportunities between day and night. For Jesus declared to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For the night is coming when no one can work. And here, no doubt, Paul is emphasizing the same reality, although he's approaching it in a different order. Paul is urging us here to realize that the darkness that we once lived in, the darkness that you and I once slept in, is no longer the place for us to be. In fact, it's so far gone, notice the language, it's so far gone that we should not be drawn or attracted to it anymore. But rather, we should be awake. We should be discerning enough to see that the day has arrived and to live in the full light of the day. Then secondly, Paul is speaking of the necessity to put off the night and to live consciously in the day because it is the light of day and in the light of day that we discover the path and the resources that we need to find our intended destination. In fact, it is quite unrealistic to think that any traveler can travel effectively in darkness, and especially when the path itself is fraught with so many obstacles to begin with. And so here in this first section of our text, Paul urges us to be spiritually awake by knowing what time it is, by taking appropriate actions to demonstrate our own self-awareness and to discern our true spiritual condition so that we might be mature enough to affirm these realities by refusing to stay in a state of spiritual slumber, by recognizing that the time of our salvation is drawing ever nearer to us, and by refusing to dwell in the night, but doing our Lord's bidding in the light of day. For true growth in grace requires of us a, a certain level of spiritual engagement which is only possible through the inward workings of the Holy Spirit who now indwells us. Then, then not only does Paul highlight here in our text the need to be awake and engaged, but he also stresses here in our text the need to be spiritually alert. Spiritually alert. And this the Apostle Paul defines as our ability to not only discern between the darkness of the night and the light of day, but the ability to throw off, to cast off our former works of darkness. Notice what Paul writes here in the middle of verse 12. So let us cast off, or one 
could translate this cast off from our shoulders like a, a filthy or an unwanted garment, the works of darkness, and then put on something entirely different. And it's interesting that Paul uses this reference to casting off and to putting on clothing here. That's what he's referring to, casting off and putting on clothing, because what we are now clothed in, spiritually speaking, points to our true spiritual state and reveals what we are now trusting in. For example, to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as with a garment is to be trusting entirely in Christ's imputed righteousness alone and solely our own. To be clothed in the righteousness of Christ is to be covered with the emblem or the symbol of his innocence and his, his perfection, rather than to bear and to display the ugliness of our own sin and our own wickedness. It is to be seen by the Father as one who is in Christ and who no longer bears the shame and the guilt of the past or of future sins or casting off of those sinful garments that we once wore proudly in the dead of night, and now donning instead the righteous garment of Jesus Christ is something that we could never do ourselves. And yet there is a sense in which you and I are not only given this imputed righteousness, but we are now putting on this garment, putting on this righteousness of Christ as we would put on an indispensable piece of spiritual armor. Notice the language, armor of light. We are putting on this indispensable armor which consists of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Armor that is intended to protect us in spiritual battle. Armor that identifies us as being in the army of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Paul makes it clear here in this context that we are not to go into this battle without being spiritually armed. Or what we need, as Paul states here at the end of verse 12, is to be fully dressed, to be properly fitted, to be completely equipped in the armor of light, or that armor that is not only associated with light, but which cuts through the darkness. And no doubt this spiritual armor associated here with the light of day is the equivalent of the whole armor of God that Paul mentions elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 11 and 12. For only in this armor, the armor of God, the whole armor of God, the armor of light, are we able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, Paul says, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. For the battle we face began in the darkness, but it shall be won in the light. Therefore, let us recognize this morning that the times that we find ourselves in, in the providence of God, are, are not times for sleeping. They're not times for slumbering but they are times that require us to suit up. To suit up spiritually and to engage in spiritual conflict. 
And of course, recognizing this requires a, a certain level of insight. I would suggest to you this morning that fully embracing this, accepting this, requires a, a certain level of maturity, doesn't it? And sadly, many who claim to walk in the light, as Christ is in the light, behave as though these realities have very little or no bearing upon them personally. In fact, all of Paul's words here about casting off one set of works and putting on armor for battle seem foreign to some. And the best response that they can muster is simply to wish for better times. Simply to wish for better times. Maybe this is you this morning. For if you had to describe your own level of spiritual preparedness today, how would you describe it? Honestly, how would you describe it? How would you characterize your your own level of readiness when it comes to those tasks that require the kind of conflict that can't be endured without the right kind of armor? How tested is your armor today? Is it tested at all? For there needs to be a level of spiritual preparedness that all of us need to actively maintain as soldiers of the cross. There needs to be an understanding among us that Christian soldiering, which is what the saints of old called the Christian life, is a daily activity. Christian soldiering is a daily activity, and that to put our spiritual guard down not only invites spiritual drowsiness, but it opens the door to trouble. Therefore, we must recognize that the time that we are in, this time when the darkness is far gone and the day is now at hand, is certainly showing evidence that much of what God has promised is being done, and yet we must also understand that we are still living in the not yet. The day has arrived, the light is dawning, but there's still much to do. There are still things that are not yet done. There are still things that are not yet fulfilled. And how we live in this time in particular is of critical importance. And how are we to live? Well, well, Paul gets very practical here in verse 13 of Romans 13. And he provides us with an example of what walking properly in the daytime looks like. In fact, Paul shines the light of day, so to speak, on the kind of activities that we should be casting off completely. For Paul writes here, notice verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Or in other words, let the fact that we are in the daytime dictate the type of conduct that is proper for us. For that which characterizes the daytime, that period in which God has called us out of darkness to be in now, is to be evident in us. And if God has called us out of darkness, Paul states here in verse 13, our conduct will not be spent in orgies and drunkenness, nor in spiritual immorality, excuse me, sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or in jealousy. Why does Paul give us this list of sins in particular? And I suggests that there's a particular reason here that he gives us this list in particular, because these are all sins that thrive in times of darkness. 
They are all sins that thrive in times of darkness. I might also add that they're all sins that destroy genuine love, if you look at them very carefully, which you'll recall Paul exhorted us to pursue back in verses 8 through 10. And so the example that Paul gives us here in the first part of Romans chapter 13 and verse 13 is an insightful one because it not only identifies what kind of sinful deeds are often promoted in the dark, but it also speaks of those specific sins that characterize a love of self and sensuality rather than the love of God and the love of one's neighbor. And therefore, Paul clearly identifies here those sins that promote the exact opposite of what we as the children of light are called to engage in, are called to promote in our own spiritual lives. And yet our ability to cast off these works of darkness, works that we were once very comfortable with and even accustomed to doing when we lived in darkness is, is not based upon who we are, but upon who we put on. Again, our ability to cast off these works of darkness is not based on who we are, but who we put on who we put on. And no doubt this is the key to our victory. This is something that we need to catch this morning. This is the key to our victory. Paul writes here in conclusion, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Because you see, brethren, our flesh which still wars against our spirit, seeks to provide you and I with many occasions for these kinds of sins to be committed by us. And our flesh still seeks to convince us that gratifying our sinful desires should be our greatest priority. Because that's how those who prefer the darkness live their lives, pursuing these things above all. We see it all around us. We see this emphasis everywhere we go, that gratifying the flesh is the way to go, is the way to ultimate fulfillment, is the way to find contentment. But we need to see through that facade. We need to see past those lies. You and I must put on something different. We must put on something different. We must put on the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that we are clinging to him and to his righteousness as our only hope of victory. And by trusting in his strength to sustain us in the battle. For it's only by putting on the Lord Jesus, it's only by trusting in his strength alone that we're able to continue in the battle. May we see how truly urgent it is that we trust in Jesus Christ alone. Brethren, I appeal to you this morning, let us seek to make no provision for the flesh today. Let us give it no opportunities. Let us give it no open doors. Let us give it no encouragements. Let's not even ponder the possibility that it might be for us. No what we need, what we must put on, 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what our souls need the most. And the light of God's word, the light of day under the providence of God makes that clear. I trust that it's clear to you today. I trust that it's clear to me today that we need to seek that provision that Jesus Christ has made through the sacrifice of himself by the indwelling presence and strength of the Holy Spirit. May God enable us to do these things today, to see the times for what they really are, to be awake, to be alert, and to be fully armed. May God bless his word today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the preached word, for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, owning that word and applying it to our hearts in a way that only he can. And we would ask your Lord for that sovereign work of the Spirit now, as he applies to our minds and to our hearts that which we have heard, that which we have presented from your word today. And we would pray that we would not only understand it, that we would endeavor by your grace to apply it to our own lives. Father, wake us up. Lord Jesus Christ, give us the provision of your own death and your own strength and your own righteousness. Holy Spirit of God, arm us, equip us, sustain us in the battle. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.